Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I am Pat Contry, and my guest this time out is the esteemed retro game collector slash historian Chris Kohler. He's been uh, working at Wired in the past as a contributing editor, and he started the Game Life section, and he's now currently the Kotaku Features Editor. Chris, what's going on? Pat, hello. Thanks for having me. You know, Chris, it, it, we have a strange relationship just because is it how strange is it because we don't see each other too much yeah. uh maybe twice a year at most mm-hmm. and we have a decent amount in common when it comes to wanting to work to preserve video game history we're both big time collectors we both look at market trends we don't always agree on a lot of a lot of uh, the mm-hmm. issues but at least we're in the same realm we're in the same space and we both sort of honor the same sort of um, retro gaming uh, sensibilities, so to speak. Yeah, when you yeah, think yeah, yeah. we're 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 you know we're we're like ninety five percent similar, and then but we spend all our time arguing about the other five percent. You know, as these things as these things go, it's like politics in general. Right? Usually, people agree on eighty nine percent, but then the ten percent divides us. No, uh, right, right, right. So I never. With that said, I don't know a huge amount about you. I was realizing that preparing for this conversation, <laughs> okay. it's like I don't know a hell of a lot about Chris Kohler. But okay. I, but I've known you on and off for like at this point five years or so. Yeah, I've uh, you know I've seen you at many uh, Portland retro gaming expos. We've done panels together, retro game roadshows. I'm sort of like the event mm-hmm. the Avengers affiliate when you don't have anyone else to come on the panel. Yeah, we kind of like Pat enough that he won't screw things up too bad. Come on up, we need you. You know, um, Pax East. We, we've been seen together at. By the way, I'm going to go back to Pax East in a month. But um, I don't know like how you got into retro gaming. Maybe you want to go over that. Sure. Okay. Well, um, Miyamoto-san was born in 1955. How far are we going back? <laughs> well, how did you how did you rediscover, I guess, retro games? Unless you never really fell out of the original. Oh, I, oh, oh, I never got out of it. I never got out of it. It was, um, I mean, yeah, we got our NES in 1988. And I mean, I still, we got our Super Nintendo, but I still had the NES hooked up um, with, with all the games. We never, we never went through that purge where we sold all the games. You know, I think I would trade in some things here and there to get money to buy more games if I didn't want the game anymore. Um, but but it was never anything like where it's, oh, I regret I sold all my Super Nintendo games. So that was always, always something that was with me. Um, you know, so where a lot of people, it's like, oh, I discovered, you know, emulators and Nesticle in 1998 and things like that. It's like for that, it was like, oh, great, another avenue through which I can play games. Um, but it's like I had never stopped playing Mario 3 and didn't like find it again or anything like that. So I just kept, I just kept playing, kept collecting everything. I would go out. My parents were yard sale people. Um, were, were constantly going out to yard sales in the pre eBay days, trying to buy stuff, and you know, going then going back to you know flea markets and selling it. And so I was there. We were always picking up lots of, of of video games, things like that. I was amassing a collection of stuff and selling the doubles. You know, since I was since I was a kid, since since early early nineties. So it, it was just never something that I. I had to pick up again. So you've been a dirty reseller for 25 years. Wow. <laughs> That's absolutely. That's right. It's interesting. And ne- yeah. It's interesting that you have a similar background to a, a big collector, uh, John Hancock, where his mother used to take him to flea markets quite often as well. He explained to me. And that's sort of so. So the, I guess the passion or love for the video games never really died because you constantly saw it constantly were out there and rediscovering it or seeing it there there wasn't like a like for me there was this like seven year gap in between uh, consoles like super nintendo and then late 90s getting back into it 
Right. And we didn't have, it's like when I was a kid, we had a 20, it, before we got an NES, my dad had a 2600. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, th- like, that's like my first gaming memory was like playing my dad's 2600, which he had set up at his workplace. You know, I was probably like three or four. Um, like, I remember Superman on the 2600. Uh, but then we never, it's not like we had an Intellivision or a ColecoVision or anything like that, but we, but we bought them. You know, after the NES came out, I started buying more old game systems at the time and getting into what was retro then in like the late 80s, early 90s. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I got a ColecoVision. I got this Smurf game, whatever, that kind of stuff. And that, and that sort of the early like, oh, if you, you know, uh, if you get to Smurfette and then you walk backwards off the screen, she, uh, she takes her clothes off, that, that kind of thing. Like that was, you know, we, we, uh, would would talk about retro games in that sense this weird old smurf game you could play is that true i have to go back and play that i forgot it's um it's <laughs> it's it's true but it's not it's true but it's not true if you if you go if you get to smurfette in the smurf game for the coleco vision then you walk back to the left uh her sprite glitches out and it that's gets overwritten okay. with something and it just looks like she um she she pulled her dress off but that's not actually she's it, they, that wasn't like an easter egg when you're 6 years old that's the biggest thing ever uh, I remember yeah. in the late 80s, maybe, yeah, maybe like 89, 88, my, my neighbor had a 2600 and about probably 40 to 50 games. And we played Sega Genesis all the time. We played like NHL, you know, PA, and we played, um, so that'd be early 90s, actually. Um, we played Altered Beast and I think Sonic, but he had a 2600. And I remember when we played that, I was drawn to it at the time. So much so that I remember at maybe 10 years old making an offer for the, the 2600 and the games. And I remember the mom refusing because the mom's like, oh, no, this is worth money or something or thinking that they, they were still remembering how much money they spent on those 40 games in the early 80s. They probably weren't all bargain bin clearance right. games. They, they spent probably 30 bucks on Centipede back then. But I remember being fascinated with some of those games. So that was my sort of first sort of uh, itch for retro gaming was something that came slightly before my time that was interesting to me because it was historic in a way. But I didn't get it. So that, that sort of fell through, which is, which is a shame because I loved playing Keystone Capers at the time. <laughs> but I guess that's so, sort of how it, somehow it starts where for some reason you're like, oh, I like this sort of, to me, primitive game and there's a, something cheeky about it or something cute that it's not modern. Right, right. Um, and so even already then, um, you know, as we got into the early 90s, you know, I started doing – so the first um, uh, thing I started doing with writing was I started uh, making a fanzine um, because, um, you know, I had read – I was reading Electronic Gaming Monthly, but also video games and computer entertainment. And Arnie Katz and Bill Kunkel and Joyce Worley, you know, talked a lot about how um, they came up. You know, they, these these guys were the, the founders of video game journalism and, and uh, the original magazine Electronic Games, but they had come up out of science fiction fandom. Uh, uh, they had come up out of making fanzines uh, for about science fiction back in the in the the fifties and the sixties, and um, they were like, "Oh, people should do this with video games." And so Joe Santulli, the guys who now run the National Video Game Museum, they had a fanzine. It was called Digital Press. Um, mm-hmm. I had a fanzine. It was called Video Zone, and I was thirteen, and I was like making this thing and xeroxing it, and and. Um, and uh, where was I going with this? Well, that was some of the first, like, you know, writing that I was doing about games. So, so, so what, what, what year was this about when you were 13? Um, I, so 1993, I was 13. Okay. I was born in 1980, so it's very easy to calculate the, the year. So 93, I put out this, this fanzine. And then 
I start trading fanzines with with Joe at Digital Press, and um, and at that time, you know, Digital Press was already doing its collector's guide yeah. uh, to to video games, the very early versions of that, uh, where they were just really they were just trying to catalog. They didn't even have prices in there. They were literally just trying to catalog all the Atari games. And so, of course, I get bit by a little bit of that bug seeing that. I mean, I'd always collected stuff. I collected Mad Magazines and then got out of it. I collected rocks and then coins and then kind of got out of it and then kind of ended up like settling on and, and collecting video games because it was like sort of merging the, the passions. Wow, that's so weird. I remember having a couple of the digital press when they were like just Xerox stapled together and mailed out. Yeah, I want to say I, I had that in like '97 or '98. I have a couple. Oh, wow, I hope I didn't throw them out. So you you loved writing, you loved mm-hmm. collecting, but you also had sort of this side where you wanted to document these things at the same time. So like sort of the three merging together. So who did you distribute uh, Video Zone to? Like like were you just like handing out to friends, or did you have a mailing list? So. Oh yeah, so the way that it worked was uh, if you sent your fanzines into Arnie Katz in at uh, Electronic Games Magazine or Video Games Computer Entertainment, he would review your fanzine and print your uh, address um, and say, "This is where you can write to get an issue of this fanzine that I do this little capsule review about." So basically, I just ended up. I mean, some people would like send me a dollar if my fanzine got reviewed, and I'd send them a copy of it. But mostly, it was trading with other people that did fanzines, and so they were my mailing list, and then I got there as well and that's how it was this pre-internet uh community of video game fans doing this sort of like you know raw you know un- unpolished unprofessional but also not really tainted by um by by like advertising you know what i mean um but sort of like the, the predecessor to neogaf except for we wrote it all down and xerox didn't send it to each other so you were just reviewing whatever you can get your hands on at the time, writing about Anything trends. I can get my hands on at the time. That's right. Yep. So were you big into the rental shops, I'm guessing? You can just easily try some stuff without spending 50 bucks on it? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> um, and, um, I mean, you can kind of see me becoming more of a, like, RPG nerd as you sort of read through the magazines because I start getting into uh, Secret of Mana and then Final Fantasy and then trying to get all the RPGs I could on the Super Nintendo. And, it, and the, that that starts becoming more of it. And then that all kind of faded out once I basically went to college. I think I did an issue or two in college, but I just had too much going on. Plus, at that point, I was starting to get work. I mean, I was actually off the back of Video Zone, which I would then send to magazines. Eventually, my writing got to the point where they were like, well, we'll pay you whatever, 100 bucks to review a video game. So, of course, I'm in college, and that's like that's that's great money. So I started doing that. So you, you, got, you made contacts early. You got experience mm-hmm. early. So by the time you got to college, you're like, all right, I'm already in this world. You're already that's a right. leg up on everyone else who wants to get into it. Yeah, by college, I had a couple of regular freelance gigs, and I was making... I mean, again, it was like, you know, if you totaled it all up, I would make like $3,000 in a year, you know what I mean? But but you'd get... I mean, well, you paid. got free video games. Like, I mean, that was, you know, they, they'd send you a review copy of the game, and at that point, it wasn't a code, and it wasn't a, uh, you know, it wasn't a CDR or anything like that. I mean, it would just send out, you know, full versions of the game. So that was really important as well. You know, I mean, for a lot of freelancers starting out, the fact that you weren't paying for your games was you know i mean that was part of it but you're a professional and just to be a professional writer Mm. is a big deal that's right and especially you're in the genre you want to be in so so then you get to wired 
Yes. No, a little a little bit happened between those two things. Okay. Um, <laughs> one is one is that my well, I mean, I, I had been to Japan. I did my whole junior year of university in Japan. Um, and then uh, as I was prepping to graduate from school, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship. And basically I said, this is my plan for the the Fulbright scholarship, by the way, is that the, it's um, it's uh, the, the United States works with the governments of other countries um, to bring uh, scholars uh, they can be graduating seniors, as it was in my case. It could be graduate students. It could be professors, you know, a lot of experience. But to bring people from one country to the other, pay for them to go for them to do a research project. Um, and so uh, what I pitched was I want to I want you to send me to Japan and I want to write a book about Japanese video games. There had there was no book. This is 2004. There was no book at this point that was like about specifically about Japanese video games and Japan and why are Japanese video games so, you know, why were they so popular worldwide? What actually happened there? Why was it Japan that was able to create these games that were so popular worldwide? So that was the pitch. Um, I got the Fulbright scholarship. So I spent a year in Kyoto um, studying Japanese games, doing tons of interviews and put together my first book, Power Up. And so that was out in 2004. And by the time that came out, I had done a little bit of freelancing for Wired. But after that, I moved to San Francisco and then started just picking up even more freelance. And then Wired became my, my main gig. And so that's kind of how that happened. So what was it like being in Japan then for, you said, a year? And you were just pounding the pavement, trying to contact video game companies, interview uh, what are now luminaries of the field. And you were just sort of working through that? Yeah, I mean, luckily I already had some like public relations contacts with um with like Nintendo and with some other people, so I was able to talk to Miyamoto while I was there. Um and so that formed a, you know, a major part of the book. Um I tried to talk to everybody I could, but it was tough uh banging down those doors. Um when I was sort of I was a freelance writer, I was kind of unproven. You know, I knew I thought the book was going to be good, but you know, it was hard to convince people. So the doors that I was able to bust down, you know, those are the people that are in the book. And and fortunately, I mean, I was able to get some good interviews. I, I spoke with Masaya Matsura, who did Parappa the Rapper. I spoke with Yuji Hori, who did Dragon Quest. Um, I, Dylan Cuthbert, who was on Star Fox. Um, I got to talk to Eiji Aonuma, the, the producer of the Zelda series. Um, uh, Fumito Ueda, who did... Who, he had just come off of Eco. And uh, he had yet to do, he had not done Shadow of the Colossus that had never been revealed, you know, certainly was, it was very far away from The Last Guardian. So we did a whole interview about Eco. It was probably at that point the most extensive interview that that guy had, had done because this was still early in the, in the process. Um, and so I did, I was able to talk to a whole lot of people and put together what I think was a... I mean, it was tough because I was in my early 20s and I didn't know anything. You know what I need to look back now? I'm almost 40 and I'm just like, wow, you're a real idiot. But, uh, you know, at the, at the time, it was the best that I could do to try to put together a survey of like, this is what Japanese video games are like. And you also then had to learn about the culture and you got to get used to that. Yeah. Besides, I guess uh, we can talk about that, but also discovering, I guess, the Japanese world of uh, retro video games and the shops. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so, yes. So, I went to... Uh, originally, I was living in a city called Kanazawa in Japan. It's it's like the seventh... Kanazawa. At the time, it was like the seventh biggest city in Japan. It's out on the West Coast. Um, but I'll tell you, I, I, you kind of learn that in Japan, most of the old video games are in Tokyo. Like, 80% of them are in Tokyo. Uh, 15% of them are in Osaka. And then the other 5% are, like, just scattered all across the country. And so living in Kanazawa, I would just hit up. I found all the places I could find old games at. And I would just routinely hit those up. And 
I didn't find very much. I found a lot of stuff eventually after a year of searching, but like it was like it, it was tough to find things. I think I saw there was one PC engine that I ever saw in the entire city at all, and I bought it. <laughs> Just one. So, <laughs> just one. There was literally one in one year. Like, one shop had one PC engine, and I bought it. But then, like, you go to Akihabara, which I did. I took a couple of trips out there and stayed with a friend. And you go there, and literally, they're just there's just stacks and piles of them, right? And so, that going to Akihabara for the first time in 2000 was amazing because it was still a retro game an absolute like retro game paradise you would it would still take you all day there were like 20 25 different stores you'd have to hit up to see everything now it's like you can you can go to like five or six stores and see everything um and and it's mostly like anime and made i mean it's it it was anime made cafes like all that stuff now was not akihabara in 2000 akihabara in the year 2000 was like just electronic stores appliance stores, video game stores, like that kind of stuff. Is that just because the, the culture changed? All the games are now in collectors' hands? There's just less stuff to sell? Um. Well, yeah. So, I mean, well, a lot of it, quite frankly, is, yes. Yeah. So, first of all, at the time in 2000, I think Yahoo Auctions existed at that point. Yahoo Auctions is what Japan uses. They mm-hmm. don't really use eBay as much. They use Yahoo Auctions for some weird reason. Um, but... The average person did not sell stuff online. The average person did not sell stuff by themselves. If you had to sell something, you took it to a used store and you and you sold it to them. Like, that's what happened. So all these stores had no problem just getting whatever inventory they wanted. Um, now people have realized they can sell stuff on their own. Now people have realized we can just we can we can buy stuff at a cheap price from the from the, the thrift stores and and sell it on eBay to foreigners mostly and, and send it out of Japan. So yeah. Stuff is disappearing, and people have less of a reason to sell it back at 50% uh, to the stores, whereas they can sell it for 100% and net 80 85% by just selling it themselves on Yahoo Auctions. So a, 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 paral- a parallel to here, so yeah, to speak. But okay. additionally, Akihabara just became a happening place because what ended up happening, you know, kind of starting in the early 2000s and really being big now, um, is that Japan became super cool all over the world. And, and, and otaku culture, anime, manga, all of that kind of stuff went from being underground and now it is like out in the open. And I think just the real estate in Akihabara now, Akihabara is now, there was a poll that I saw where Akihabara ha- uh, was more of a, like they asked tourists coming to Japan, what are the places in Japan that you want to go to? And Akihabara outranked Tokyo Disneyland. Wow. Like Akihabara was like number seven on the list. And, and and that just shows you, like, when when I was there, people were like, Aki, what? Where are you going? You're going to buy video <laughs> games? That's weird. You should go to temples. You should go to here. And But now it's like everybody wants to go there. Uh, and so the real estate in Akihabara has got, has, has got to be so expensive now that it's hard for, like, a video game store to set up shop and, and operate there. Interesting. So you had subcultures and hobbies help redefine this area. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So what was it was there a culture shock when you when you first were in Japan how quickly did you get used to the people and the and the customs when you went I think there was there was more of a culture shock coming back because you go somewhere <laughs> I mean you know, certainly you 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 discover things you discover that um uh 
you go through the honeymoon period of this is the most amazing thing ever and then you go into the trough of thinking this is the worst why did i come here and then you know <laughs> hopefully it kind of normalizes coming back was tough because you get back to america and it's like oh my god it's so dirty here why is everything so dirty there's this, this there's this uh japan is just such a clean place and not only because they clean it but because there is this generalized sense among everybody that we should all work together to keep all of this stuff really clean and and not litter and not you know poop in the escalator as as is is often the case here in in san francisco where i live wow i not that i personally have done that very much but that it happens a lot well i don't want to see that go through the grate and come back around that'd be no you do not kind of messy oh my god that was what happened. No, I mean there was literally a um, the 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 BART, which is the um, the commuter train here in the Bay Area, announced that like you know this 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 elevator is uh, or this escalator is shut down because it's too full of human feces and we we have to clean it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so that was so the culture shock, as I said, <laughs> was coming back, coming back because it's like, oh, I want to live here, and I know you go back every so often. I see you tweeting that you go back, so you just like to visit. Every once in a while. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I, you know, again, if my life had taken a different path, maybe I would end up living there. I mean, some people I know certainly ended up living there. Uh, for me, it was like, you know, maybe I don't actually want to live here after all. You know, you entertain that notion. But then it's like, mm, maybe I maybe I want to live oh. in America. Maybe I want to visit Japan. I was going to say, I mean, you live in one of the most expensive cities in the U.S., if not the most. I mean, Tokyo can't be that much worse or parts that was, of Japan. Yeah, that was not my intention. <laughs> I, did not, I did not choose. I, did, I, I, I came here before all the other – the dot-com bubble had burst and everything was – a uh, you know, housing prices were very low. <laughs> oh, so you got in before? You got in the bottom floor there. You didn't have to worry about I did, about but it. then I had to move out of my, like, awesome, like, $1,000 a month, you know, rent-controlled apartment. Uh -oh. And uh, we move into something else. We own now, so we're, we're all set, though. They had to gentrify the area. <laughs> so you're in San Francisco now. So, okay, we'll get to – so eventually you get to Wired, right? So it's sure. like you yeah, have this experience. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're a young published author mm -hmm. yep. with, mm -hmm. with, with Power Up, which is great. So did the book do well when you first released it? Nope, not at all. Um, it was published by uh, Brady Games, which was the, the, the strategy guide uh, publisher, and they thought they wanted to get into nonfiction. I think they looked at what Prima had done with Stephen Kent's uh, book, The Ultimate History of Video Games. They looked at some other stuff, and they said, okay, nonfiction about games. We should get into that. So I'm very grateful that they that they you know took a chance on, on my book, and they published it, um, but they didn't get it into bookstores. They got it into uh, EB Games and GameStop and stuff like that, and you couldn't find it in bookstores. And uh, again, this is 2004, so it's not like you know the Amazon is not happening. You really need that bookstore distribution. Um, and what ended up happening is they put it in there in like uh, September uh, at the end of the holiday season. The GameStops, whatever of the world, had um, had all these copies left, which they pennied out. They marked them all at a penny, Ugh. and then they uh, threw them in the trash. And then that was it. That was the distribution of the original uh, version yeah, of Power Up. I don't, I don't think a 12 year old looking at their their Metal Gear Solid strategy guy is going to look over, oh, I'm going to do some heavy reading about... Oh, Chris, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. You're, you're right. It's always... I always do find it funny when somebody's like, oh, yeah, I saw that at a GameStop, and I, I thought, oh, wow, that's so interesting, and I bought it. I'm like, oh, you're the one. You're the guy. Um, that's great. Um, Chris, but, did you... Uh, it's actually... It's out now again. It's it's out now from uh, Dover Publications with a new chapter, and so they're they're doing it uh, a, a lot better. Chris, you, you started your own nonfiction video game book crash. <laughs> yep. It was pennied out. Well, it's it interesting because yeah. even in the mid 2000s, you can probably still count on one hand the number of games that dealt with video game history. 
There wasn't a huge amount That's right. out there. Oh, I owned them all. I had read every book about video games. I had read every book about video games. Like there, and there just weren't that many out there. Um, and so at the time, you know, there, I felt there was an opportunity to write something new. And what's exciting now is there's just there's tons of stuff about Japan and video games. So many amazing books out there to read that you can't even. You know, I, I I certainly can't say anymore that I've read even a, a fraction of, of what's available out there, I think that, which is great. Well, I guess the supply is caught up to the demand for that sort of material, mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, now there's a new video game book or retro gaming guide coming out every other month. Even there fi- is, and they're, and they're all exhaustive lists of NES games. Every single one of them. Every single one? Is a, is a <laughs> giant hardcover coffee table book. Uh, that lists every game available for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Is is there a, just a whole league of them? That's its own section now. Is that what? There, it is? Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, that's its own. It's its own genre at this point. Oh, I'm, I'm glad I can help popularize that genre. That's right. <laughs> so tell me. So tell me about you. Come to Wired, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Okay, we want you. You're okay. You have some experience." Sure. Yeah. Um, and then you you help start up a whole new section. Yeah. So what ended up okay. So at this time, this is when Kotaku was starting up. This is when Joystick was starting up, Destructoid, um, you know, probably some others that I'm forgetting. Uh, but everybody was starting a, a, what was essentially called at that point a blog. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of realizing that um, the web changed publishing. You should not be, you know, producing like, you know, five stories per day. You know, it should be a thing where it's just publishing is just sort of constantly happening. Um, and so Wired was like, let's get into this. Let's do what Gawker was doing at the time and uh, hire, you know, 10 people, each of whom is an expert in some field um, and have them uh, write, you know, a, a constantly running stream of stories of shorter, faster, you know, stuff um, about certain subject areas. And after they started that with, there was like a gadgets blog and a sex blog and one other thing. And then I went to the Wired office because they were having a, a party and I was doing some freelancing for them here and there. And I'm like, this is, th- I'm going to make the play. Like, this is this is where I'm going to make this move. And I went to the party and, you know, after having a little bit of a conversation with the editor-in-chief was like, so you should do a video games blog. I should write a, the video games blog for you. And um, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we should we should do that. And so uh, that's that's basically how that got started. So that allowed you to wire even – what year was this when you started with them? 2005. So even then uh, – So I had done a little bit of freelancing for them over the intervening three years. And 2005 is when we started Game Life. So you figured this is a huge publication, but maybe they have to be more – Go go for the juggler when it comes to gaming news, and then gives you an opportunity then to insert even retro gaming and video game history topics. Every Absolutely. Now and then. So I, of course I, I started doing that. Start yeah, seeding. Um, start seeding the public. Yeah. Well, I was <laughs> I was doing. Um, here's what I found at thrift stores as as part of it. You I, know, I every couple that. of weeks I would do. Yeah. So I would do the weekend thrifting and like this is what I got at thrift stores today. This is what I found at the flea markets, and um, you know, at the time. It was super easy. This is like 2006, 2007. Like, the salad days. And I'm living – oh, so good. I was living in San Francisco and it was just like – I mean I, I tell this story a lot because it's it's true and I, I – um, the, 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 the point is that I would never do this again. But um, I would just wake up on a Saturday – and just take the bus all around San Francisco, Hayton, Ashbury, you know, the Mission District, downtown, you know, Chinatown, Japantown, back to my house, the every thrift store. And I'd come back with bags, bags full of stuff. Um, 
you know, consoles, multiple CDIs, bags upon bags of CIB games and Turbo Graphicses and Turbo Graphics games and whatever. Um, I would never do that today. Like that would be a total waste of a Saturday today to to even do that because it's it's all gone. But for a while, it was it was amazing. So that so that was compiling the collection. I guess you also had spare time to trade or sell some of the extras. You also compiled at the same time while you're working at Wired. Um. Yeah. You know, at that point, I think that this. St- well, yes. So at that point, if I found anything that I already had I'd, I'd probably just throw it on ebay or something like that because there wasn't really you know much of an outlet and honestly it, it really it's not like the stuff went for that much because no nothing really cost that much at that point yeah um so and I, I probably had a little box of doubles that you know that i was working on but yeah it's so funny you say garbage bags because yes you would sometimes f- find them um so the flea markets here were good sometimes they hit up three in one day when it was worth it yep uh yep. here um, not don't take a bus, thankfully, just a car. But yeah, sometimes uh, there'd be garbage bags of games and stuff, and then I'm walking back with a backpack full. I have like those shopping bags, like the, the oversized one, two of them. My buddy Frank, we might know or have mm-hmm. heard of, he's carrying a bag for me. Sometimes it'd be so messed up that I would forget. Like I say to someone selling something, even if it was toys or a box console, hey, can we pick this up later? Sure. I would forget where they were because sometimes it was like <laughs> one thing there, one thing there. I'd have to rewalk the entire thing to find what right. I what going I going up to people yeah. and be like, "Hey, did I buy something from you?" Yeah, <laughs> it was that. Hold it. It was that insane. It was probably like that at least around here until about I'd say 2011. Once mm-hmm. you hit 2012 yep. to 13, then it started to be a, a, a much bigger influx of more collectors, and also people would st- would start. Uh, pricing things more because everyone has smartphones by then uh, for the most part. So it was a bad combination. But yeah, if I didn't go to the swap meet, I felt anxiety at the time. Probably because I was also out of my mind because I was like, oh my God, I'm missing out on all this stuff that people are basically giving away. So it was a a sickness. It was an obsession Mm -hmm. at the time that I had to get over slowly but surely and working on that book that's one of a thousand uh, checklist books as you described <laughs> that was part of the reason was like okay i gotta work on other things i can't go but there was a nice three-year period where i went almost every saturday and sunday t- uh, two days a week and was spending hundreds of dollars every weekend at the swap meet and that's volume not just not a couple things that's like volume of, of stuff right and i still so um i kind of had to make a decision like well what is the smart thing for me to do so Mm -hmm. i right now where i live there's literally two thrift stores that are right outside my front door like a like across the street that's why you bought there and like a block or a half a block away (laughs) um so i'll go to those i mean that's not costing me anything and i will absolutely find stuff there um but but uh i would never like go out of my way you know, to, to do it. Um, I'll pop in there as I'm like walking back home or something like that. Um, but like, I'll do that. But, but when I go to the flea market, I will get up at the, you know, butt crack of dawn and get to the flea market super, super early. I have gotten there when it is dark because that is when the stuff sells. Like you have to get it then. Uh, and it's there. Like, it will be. I mean, it, it depends on your flea market. My flea market, the stuff is there. So, I mean, you just got to get there really early and get it. But if you're getting, if you're going to that flea market and you're getting there at 10 a.m., 
It's gone. Oh yeah, you got to say, oh, there's nothing at the, it, there's nothing at my flea market. My flea market is dry. It's like no, somebody bought it already. Yeah, I I, get, I used to get the mine at seven. And that's when you're allowed in, unless you're if you're a seller, they're roaming around at six a.m. when it's right, literally right, dark right. Out. But getting in at seven, some of the stuff is still there. It depends on the time period. But uh, I guess they're lazier down in San Diego. I've had I've had a friend that after I left would walk around and do a second go around, and people were still putting stuff out at ten a.m. and he, he would find you know. A uh, where's an example? Oh, just at Uncharted Waters on NES. You'd find that after I went through that cellar and it wasn't even out yet. Right, so right. Th- there I mean, is that, that, that does happen. That's <laughs> true. Yep, that's right. Yep. Or I or I'd leave and he'd be like, oh yeah, uh, you know, I, I happened to stumble upon a guy and you know he did have some rare stuff or find a Flintstones. I'd say yeah, I'd say either go early or go late. You know, yeah. either go super early <laughs> or just go at the very, very end of the flea market because it does actually give you a little bit more leeway in terms of bargaining and and yeah, like especially if people are still pulling stuff off of the trucks. Flea market that I go to, there's no there's nowhere for it to go. Like there's yeah. It's a small flea market. So you've been collecting then longer than I have. You've been collecting. You never. You been, well. You never stopped buying games. Basically, so, that's right. Yeah. So you can. Say, so you can say you've been collecting for thirty years at this point, as opposed sure, to me, where not? I can say it's been about twenty, twenty-one. So do, do you feel that that collector itch at this point lessening? Is it still just as strong? Is it being refocused towards preservation and archiving versus collecting? Where do you see yourself now versus even ten years ago? Um, well, I still really enjoy collecting, uh, but at, at this point, it's like when you used to be able to go out and buy tons of stuff for no money, it, it becomes very difficult to say, like, but some pe- when people spend $500 on a copy of Hagane, you know, a loose cartridge with a messed up label, and I'm like, where is the what is the trade off there? Like I don't see the the joy. I'd rather have the five hundred dollars than than that copy of that game. You know, sure. it's really weird. Like, but at the same time, I did just spend like like close to that on a copy of a game called The Death Trap, which was a Japanese PC game that I can't even play because I don't have literally an old <laughs> Japanese like PC. But it was it was the first game ever released by Square, and it was the first game ever made by. Hironobu Sakaguchi, who was the the creator of Final Fantasy. And I was actually, I actually just finished doing that collection, a collection of the PC games that Square made prior to getting into Famicom and NES. And I was like, see, the thing with these games is they're super rare. Some of the ones that I found over, over a year and a half of searching, it's like the one copy that came up on Yahoo auctions in it. Cause they're not on eBay. A lot of them aren't even in Akihabara. When I go and look there, they just come up on Yahoo auctions and it's like, Oh, this is the one copy that came up in a year and a half, two years of searching. Okay. They're rare, but not a lot of people care. So I like going after stuff where it's rare. It's interesting to me, but nobody else is really hardcore going after it. So the prices are not spiraling out of control. Well, that's like a lot of PC gaming. I mean, PC gaming has gotten hotter to the past couple of years, but it has for, yeah. for a long time. No one, but me and three other people gave a shit about it. Like, mm-hmm. cause mm-hmm. for, for a lot of people, they didn't grow up with a lot of PC games versus console, but it's like, Oh, who cares if you get the original Ultima, you know, the, you know, the Apple two yeah. version, is that really a thing? But it also, it also gets all of the, um, I mean, all of the all of the people that are buying and selling now, all the people that are sort of like quick flippers who are just like trying to buy console game collections and then sell them. You know, they don't get into they don't they are they're not into PC. 
Like, they'll pick it up if it's super cheap, but they also don't really care. So, I mean, I just won an auction on eBay for a, you know, giant stack of PC games. You know, half of it was, like, Sierra LucasArts stuff. It was really good. And it was an auction. Anybody could have bid on it. Mm. Um, and I got it for a very low price um, that I, I consider to be a low price because there's just not as many people playing in there because the the guys who are just going to buy i mean any lot of super nintendo games is going to go for like 80% of its value because people will buy it and then sure. mark it up to 120% and then sell it but there's less baloney like that going on in pc games so yeah like even though even though the prices of pc games are getting higher they are getting hotter there's just less of the that you know there's there's less action happening there so it's you can find better deals well i feel that pc collecting is very specific yeah. You, you're not going to have people go out and buy swaths of games that they either don't have experience with or don't know about because there's just so much out there. It's impossible right. to get it all. There's a lot of garbage. And people don't collect like, oh, I'm an IBM XT collector. No, you're not. Maybe you collect Infocom games or maybe you collect LucasArts games. You know, maybe you collect all the, you know, all of a certain subset of text adventure. So it's an entirely different beast um, mm-hmm. than, than console games. So, yeah, when you go to conventions, when you see someone selling uh, – old PC or IBM or Apple II games, it's like, I know I have to compete with two other people here, probably. And, yeah. But I know that I have to, th- there's a game that I want, someone else wants that same exact game, probably. Like, that's basically how it is. You're less likely to splinter off and, t- and both buy different yep. s- sorts of games. I think that conventions are a wonderful place to find um, more obscure stuff that you are into like conventions the convention is the worst place to try to buy I don't know earthbound you know what I mean because everybody at that convention there's tons of people that are going for earthbound but if you're talking about you know Japanese stuff big box PC stuff Mm -hmm. you know magazines manuals boxes all the all the other kind of things I think you have a better chance going to a convention if somebody has weird stuff like that you have a better chance of, of getting and getting a deal on it because there's just less competition and that's how I know I'm in the twilight of my quote unquote collecting career uh, you might get there too eventually Chris you might be 85 but you'll get there when I now for the most part look out for the weird stuff or the stuff that I know yep. that only I would be interested in or a handful of people and uh, I've completed my NES collection. I don't know if I, if I told you that. So the North American. Oh, congrats. Sure. I, we can get into the feeling that I have about that. <laughs> it's sort of like, yeah, it's finally done. It's like a chore at this point. It's like I could have done it years and years back. And it's like I kept put, not, not putting off. And it's not like the, the final few games I got. They really didn't go up in value either the mm-hmm. past years. Mm-hmm. It sort of stayed the same place. So it's just like, yeah, I got it over with. Like, I felt like I had yep. to. But now it's looking at. Odd controllers for myself, odd peripherals. I'm always into odd NES peripherals because, honestly, every year I find still one or two peripherals I've never seen before. Regional ones, ones that are knockoffs of other ones. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. I don't know if there's a catalog, even a website anywhere that lists every single NES peripheral. I doubt it. I highly doubt it because there's hundreds um, or close to a couple hundred. Yeah. Um, but that's where I am now. Um, and, and so if I really want to get something, it has to be very specific and I'm not in the mode anymore where I'm just going to buy whatever I can to buy. It has to be something, a subset of something, an odd Super Nintendo game that won't cost me $200, but I think is interesting, like the Looney Tunes basketball game, for example. I remember picking that up a couple years ago. Yeah. Oh, this is weird. I never really heard of it. It's like five bucks. you know. Right. But, but in terms of like mass buying of stuff, that's done. 
I can finally yeah. say I've sort of hit a peak. Maybe I'm getting older. I have less energy. I don't go to the flea market as much as I used to. But right. maybe it's sort of a, I don't know, a sign of the times where collectors roll over and they become something else. They become more archivists or preservationists. Yeah. So so for me, it was kind of like, I mean, especially, um, you know, as as um, as our mutual friend Frank Cifaldi, you know, started uh, really formalizing what he was doing, starting the Video Game History Foundation, I just decided you know, it, it, this is very important to me. I, I want to make sure that I'm not the collector that goes out and buys stuff and puts it in a box and forgets about it and doesn't use it. Uh, so I've made it very clear to Frank, you know, if I have it, you know, and you need to use it for something, it's yours. Um, if I find, if I were to find a prototype, we will dump it and, and make sure that people can enjoy it. I'm not hoarding it. I'm not keeping it for myself. Um, if I have materials, archival materials, things like that, that you want to scan, you're please, please do it. Um, and so that's, so it is, and it's really nice, I think, for all of us that the Video Game History Foundation now exists because it was really difficult to talk to people and say, oh, you're a game designer, you have all these unreleased games and you have all of these, you know, design docs and archival materials. You should give them to my friend, Frank. <laughs> just give it to him, just mail it to him. <laughs> right, right. And and he, and he would have done something wonderful with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He doesn't care. He doesn't want the stuff. He doesn't care about the physical stuff. He wants to disseminate it and he wants to archive it. But now that it's the now that it's actually a 501c3 nonprofit corporation um, and people can donate to it and then write that donation off of their taxes and it's it's a real it's a real thing. It's much easier to say here's the information for the video game history foundation. You guys should talk to them about making sure that this, this stuff is preserved. And that's at gamehistory.org for everyone. And that's been around for now, what a year and a half, two yeah. years. Yep. A year mm-hmm. and a half. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, you try to spread the word. I don't think some, not that some collectors don't care about it. I don't think they, mm-hmm. they don't see the value as much as other people when it comes to that. I remember running into uh, one seller. I won't call them that exactly. Cause I'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They did have an NES, earlier build prototype i'm like have you I, and i saw them at a convention with it and they weren't selling it but i'm like they were just showing off this game i'm like have you dumped that yet they're like no nah, we haven't done that yet and i was like well you really should i mean yeah. you can buy the little the little whatever it's called i forget the kazoo whatever for like yep. 25 yep. bucks and you can do it yourself or i said you can mail it to someone named frank that i know and then i saw him and they said okay we'll look into that whatever and then i saw him like a year later and they still had it and they hadn't done anything yeah and it's just interesting that I'm not sure what you can do to convince people that hey, you should do this, just just in case something b- bad happens to that game or you lose it or there's yep. bit, bit rot or God forbid, uh, you you sell it to someone who will never intend on dumping it, keeping it locked away forever, like right. a, like a certain NES prototype that a friend of ours saved, you know, like that's th- there's important reasons for this. This is yeah, you know, and and I hate to say it, not to get into legality, it's like well, you don't own that game. You don't have the right to lock it away uh, when it comes down to it. If you really want me to get technical, well, like I mean, I I think that they I think they do have the right <laughs> if they if they want to. It's well, about it's about I think convincing some people that that is that's the wrong way to go about it. Well, no, they don't what, they don't hold the intellectual uh, property. So if I own a prototype to a game, I really don't. That's the company who developed it. They own it. 
Uh, it, it it depends. It depends. It depends on how it was acquired. Because if it was if it was legally considered abandoned property, and it was if it was if it was thrown away, you know, and you abandoned it. Uh, if if it was if it was legit given away to an employee. Uh, if it was auctioned off. I mean, a lot of people end up. But you know, back in the day, you know, a lot of the early collectors would go to uh, the company would go bankrupt. They'd go to the 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 auction of the assets and buy the assets, which included prototype games, and they don't own the intellectual property that's on Correct. there but i but i own my copy of super mario brothers i own that cartridge but i i don't own the underlying rights to the computer code but i own my copy and if you have a prototype then you own a copy you don't own the underlying rights it's like somebody found a um they found an oswald the lucky rabbit short you know that was on the the film strip reel they they sold that for a lot of money because they don't own the oswald the lucky rabbit short but they own that print of it, and Disney had to pay them whatever five figures to get it back. I Disney see. can't just say we own that. So you're saying from yeah. the first sale doctrine, you're like, okay, even if it's a prototype, that I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah, sure. It's still ethically sucky uh, if you go that. No, route. I mean, well, yeah. So that's <laughs> the thing. I mean, well, that's yeah. So look, there's a lot of things that you have the right to do, but that people are going to approach you and say, you know, hey, you may have the right to do this, but. You know, it's uh, what we think is the the nice thing to do to people um, is to dump it and allow everybody to to enjoy it. What what do you what do you think about the current uh, climate where people take unreleased games, um, they they buy the rights to them or the prototype, and then they uh, they they then end up publishing it, doing kickstarters. Do you think that's an overall positive because the game gets out there? Is this something that I'm I'm surprised I've seen it develop this quickly over the past few years. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I mean, yeah, again, if you if look, if you want to spend the money to actually go ahead and acquire the intellectual property rights to something, sure. I mean, this happens with films. People buy the intellectual property rights to films and re-release them, whatever, on on DVD. Um, if you're going about it all the right way and you think that that's a business that you want to be in, great. Um, I think that in the case of, so for example, the, the Socks the Cat uh, prototype that, that people finished and, and put out, um, I think that for historical purposes, they should dump the original ROM, the original work that was done, and put that out there for people to experience um, so that they could see what the actual, you know, the actual prototype played like and felt like. Um, versus the version that they did where they i mean apparently the game was very buggy so they fixed the bugs made it playable all the way through and then and then released that onto a cartridge that's fine if if you want to do that but i mean i think let's let's all remember here that we're trying to to preserve history as well as if you guys want to make money so it's it's just a nice thing to do at that point oh so that was a case of a prototype copy being found but it was I'm not going to get into whether or not they actually purchased intellectual rights to do it, but they at least got the prototype. They they copied it, they downloaded let's, it, they altered yeah, it, and put it out. Okay. Sorry, let's say for purposes of argument that that they that they have the rights and that it's all locked down. I've I've heard things uh, on that that makes me I'm not sure. I'm not going to get sure. into it. So so it. simply as a hypothetical here, <laughs> let's let's say they had. I'm not say saying one way or the other. It. Yeah, right. I'm, exactly. <laughs> I'm just saying, like for you know, arguendo, they have the rights. Well, they should still release the original version. But I agree. Yeah, I mean, if you you know, there's a guy who put out um Super 3D Noah's Ark again on Super Nintendo. He he bought the IP rights. Pico Interactive. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, 
And they're putting out the first, uh, I think, the first N64 prototype that they found that they're re- releasing. They got the right. Oh, team. the 40 Winks. Right, right. Look, yeah. If you if you have the rights, you know, go ahead and do it. I mean, honestly, we're gonna see that happen. We we are just on the verge of, um, I think, classic cartridge official classic cartridge reproductions. They're they're gonna become big. I think. I mean, I think that this uh, the the success that uh, I am eight bit had with their Street Fighter two cartridge. Um, I think that they're going to start convincing more video game companies that this is a is a good idea. Um, it, it, it's like, is it a lot of money for Capcom? You know, they they make they make five thousand of these. They sell them for a hundred bucks each. Is that is that a lot? Of, is that a lot of money? Well, they're no. just for them. It's well, it's easy money if they're if they're just licensing it out. Here, that's, you, that's you deal it. with exactly. it. Yeah. It's just it's just one of many so, licensing deals that they do, and it's just more money that comes well, in. And just it's a matter of it's a matter of smaller companies like I am Apit being really passionate about it and getting them to to give them the rights. I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be. I do. I don't know if it's going to be like the resurgence of games on or resurgence of music on vinyl that's kind of been happening, but like I think that I think that it's going to happen yeah we're seeing that we're, we're seeing other companies like retrobit put out their collections of like jalico games or or data, that's right yeah. da, data east beat-em-ups for example and you have to look at i think the, the specific property who's it marketed towards obviously something like the street fighter 230th anniversary was marketed to collectors because you can go out and get the super nintendo game for like 10 15 bucks why would you spend a hundred dollars on it just to get a sticker um i could see them doing that with uh, like maybe like a Mega Man X. Maybe they already planned that. I forget. Yeah. But I think there's going to be a market uh, for maybe official re-releases of of games that weren't uh, pro- uh, distributed wild like wildly, but are popular now. Cult hits on certain yeah. consoles. Maybe you get a maybe you get a licensed reproduction of Little Samson, for example, where right. you can go and you can go and spend ten, twelve bucks on a cheap knockoff, or you get the collector's edition for fifty, sixty bucks, and that and that could fulfill a need. And what's really important about this is that it, it sort of straddles the line between it's a functional game, but then also, you know, it's it's if you've looked, if you've seen one of the the I am Apeit, you know, Street Fighter Two is up close. It's really nice, like the the you know the the foil, the embossed printing on the box. The box has the fold out thing. It's like that's something that you you know you can put it on your on your desk at work, and it's not a Funko Pop, basically. <laughs> You're afraid of these putting out a bunch of Funko Pops. <laughs> Speaking of all the the counterfeits from the uh, Alibaba or AliExpress, uh, oh yeah, have you seen that make a, a, a dent into the retro gaming market, or is that sort of separate? Do you feel people that maybe would not be big collectors, I want to buy a bunch of eight ten dollar knockoff games? Of well, I, I see I see a lot of people who are collectors who buy buy mostly real stuff, and then they're like, oh, but you know, I bought a repro of you know Hagane because I just want to have it on my shelf, uh, and I don't really care if it's real or not. And I think this is going to start affecting things in like five to ten years because it's not just guys sitting at home making a dozen repros of a game anymore. It's it's these the the AliExpress and like you know companies in China that are pumping these things out. Sure. Um, give it a while. Give it a few years for them to sell tons and tons and tons of these. Then let them get into people's collections, and then as those people that are buying these start getting out of collecting and selling. The market gets flooded with fakes, um, and I think I, I don't quite know what that's going to do. But yeah, it will affect things, and it will make the, it will make a lot harder to go and like, you know, right now, if I wanted to buy somebody's collection of games, I go to their house, look at the collection, and I don't have to wonder is this fake. 
It's like, you know, it's real. All you're really worried about is the value at that point, or what am I going to pay for this? But 10 years from now, if somebody says, hey, I got a big collection of Super Nintendo games. Do you want to buy it? You go in, and you're going to look at it all, and you're going to have to start asking yourself with each individual game. You're going to have to start looking at it and saying, is this a fake or not? Because they're going to, it's going to be so flooded, it's going to be ridiculous. Well, thankfully, the quality isn't what the original yeah, well, that's why it becomes very important. You have to know your stuff. You have to be constantly learning about, you know, I mean, really, you don't need to know what a fake looks like. You need to know what a real one looks Correct. like. And then when you get a fake in your hands, you're going to be like, this is off. This is wrong. Colors off. It just feels off. The weight's off before you even have to. Sometimes they don't have the labels on the back. So you'll yeah, be able to just, easily You're going to be yeah. immediately like, wait a minute, something's wrong with this. And that's going to tell you to, to, to look deeper into it. I wonder if it's going to erode confidence overall in the cl- collecting market at all. Or it's just going to always be separate. Or it's always going to be like, like people always say, oh, it's like this, the reason why me and Ian hate repro labels. Because it's mm-hmm. always like, well, it's just for me and no one else. Well, it's like, no, you're going to sell it at some point. And then that's right. It's not passed along. And they're going to pass it along. You know, it's and, and so I think I think that a lot of people have this uh, very strange idea that the things that they buy, they're like never going to sell them. And they're literally their family is going to get an extra large coffin and put their body in it and then fill up all the remaining space with their super Nintendo games. For some reason they think this is going to happen. It's like, what do you think is going to, you're it's like, and it's, and also it's not even going to be when you die, you're going to sell this in 10 years. You're going to sell this in 20 years. Like, you're you're eventually going to sell this stuff. Oh, Everything man. gets sold. It's Everybody the- who says I'll never, never, never in a million years sell my stuff, they you, you, your stuff gets sold. Yeah, my stuff will be. So sold. So what are you going to do about it? I'm going to snap probably within a few years, and my stuff will be sold to you know afford my care, probably. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at. I mean, I had this conversation. Those, those mental hospitals are expensive. <laughs> I mean, I had this conversation with myself even before I moved. I knew it was coming, but obviously, moving puts things in perspective. When you're packing up. A few thousand games, you're like, oh, okay. Like, I, I have so many PC games that I didn't realize I had. Like, yeah. that I picked up at this flea markets where no one else would buy them. And I would tell the seller, I'm the only person buying these. And not just a lowball, I'm just like, hey, listen. Because they always go, hey, can I sell these? It's like, no, nah, you can sell them. Okay, I'll just buy them and I'll offer you something. So I have boxes upon boxes of, of sometimes sealed PC games from the 80s. And yeah. And I'm, yeah just looking, I'm looking at stuff like, I'm going to die with this stuff. Like mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. even in that, I won't be able well, to sell. Don't don't <laughs> die with your with your stuff. Like take care of your affairs while you're still alive. But at um, some point, though, the stuff goes to someone else, and then at some point, there's no one else that wants this stuff. And I and that's what I'm trying to impart on people now when it comes to these retro game collections. Where at some point, because me and Ian, we, oh, we were asked a question about video game collectors. Why do I think the question was I don't know if it was loaded or a straw man, but why do collectors think oh, their games are going to end up in museums? And there's some collectors that honestly think my entire collection will end up in a museum. And they won't. Some people, well, p- parts of some people's collections will end up in museums. Most won't. Some, your some collections po- can end up in a museum right now. There are several museums in the United States that will take all your stuff right now. No problem. They'll run They'll out of space, and there's way too many games out there. I think that's the point I'm going to get to. Is oh, that... oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's not everybody's collections. Yes. So, like, yeah. at some point, it's like, okay, even if you want to get one of every game that's out there. Right. Okay. 
What about the other million people who have the same games? That's right. What, That's what right. happens yep. to their games 100 years from now or even 20 yep. years from now? And so I'm trying to make people – I'm trying to, to sort of let people down easily in the shock of that, you know, you value these games probably as much as anyone in the history of the world will ever value these games in your collection right now. So if you're going to get rid of them, either do it now or don't think you're going to retire on them in 30 years or enjoy them. And those are probably the most realistic options you have right now. Yep. In your yep. life. Because physical media as a whole is dying, which means the value of physical media is dying overall, even to us right now, the last generation who really grew up with it, um, or even a generation behind us if we're roughly the same age. Um, so my, my point is, is that at some point, these games are going to sit somewhere. Um, and it's just something where I right now I'm like, OK, I have 300 Genesis games. I will never play all 300 of these Genesis games. Mm-hmm. So maybe I cut it down to 150. You know, is that reasonable? Maybe with even my, my OCD, I'll allow myself to do that. Do I really need NBA Showdown on Genesis and Super Nintendo? Probably not. I, I probably will never play it on one of the systems, if not both. So I'm, I'm finally getting that into my head where it's okay to let go of some of this stuff. I'm in, yeah, I'm in the same place that I feel like eventually or probably sometime soon. Cause right now, if I get doubles, I sell doubles. But if I, but if I don't have the game, I just keep it. Um, because it, well, whatever, I'll just, I'll just, I'll, I'll keep it. Um, and that's in San Francisco where, where, where the cost for, for square foot's a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I have a storage unit, um, which probably costs a lot more here than it does in elsewhere. But, uh, but, but, at this point, it's not really an issue to just hold on to you know one copy of every game. And I really, I really do my best to not have two copies of anything. You know, if I have a double, I move it out. Um, but but I'm getting to the point where it's like, do I do I want to start selling things where I only have one copy of it? And if so, what is that stuff? And and what do I want to what do I want to do with it? Sure. So eventually, I, I will probably start paring down. Uh, especially just because, as we've said, prices are going up. Um, it's it's probably and, and it's like I I I I desire tons of games less than I have. I, I like the idea of maybe being more curated with it. That's where I'm getting. So, like for example, I have a limited number of shelves here for this room, and so my problem in the past was that you know I'd have games squirreled away in those like uh, white Rubbermaid stackable drawers or whatever. And it's like, that's not really respectful to the games that I'm not really going to dig through and play a random ass 32X game. So really, should I just curate down to the games that I see or the ones I'm probably going to probably play or appreciate? I'm kind of getting to that point. Um, I have 200 boxed NES games sitting in the garage that mm-hmm. I also have the cartridge of and the manual. And I just yeah. have them there. And it's like, I don't need them. Like, I know I don't need them. I should probably sell them and someone else can enjoy. I mean, even my freaking, I have a kid clown complete. That's like, I don't really need that. You know, yeah. I think, I think this is probably the time. Oh, uh, it absolutely is the time to sell. Yes. Any. Yes. <laughs> I think that, I think that we have hit, uh, in general peak NES. I think we hit it a while ago. We hit it. We hit it a year and a half down. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, everybody said, I mean, every, I was just like, you know, look at what happened with Atari, and everyone's like, no, 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 that won't happen with NES, Nintendo is different, Nintendo isn't Atari, Atari's not culturally relevant anymore, Nintendo is culturally relevant, the same thing is not going to happen, don't worry, oh, look, it's happening on the exact same cycle as what happened with Atari, because 
the Atari collectors went crazy. They bought up stuff hitting its peak in like 2007, 2008. Then it kind of started coming down again. And yes, hit its peak. It's coming down again. And what happens is the rarest of the rare, you get to a point where it's, it's best or nothing. And now this, this happens a lot in collectibles. There's people still collecting NES, but they want either the best. Either they're going to pay a record amount for a sealed hang tab. Super Mario Brothers going to pay 30000 bucks for it. Or they're not going to pay anything for it. So with Atari, the same thing happened. Air Raid. If an Air Raid were to come up today, Air, it would hit another record, right? It would, it would probably set another record. For a box or like, I mean just loose? For a box, okay. for a box complete with a manual air raid, people would probably pay potentially about what they paid last time or more because that stuff will keep going up. But the the loose stuff, I mean, all of the, I mean, you know, you could sell Contra at one point for 40 bucks. Loose Contra. That's, those days are extremely over. And that's, we've, we've hit the crest on NES, it's coming down. And it's going to happen to Super Nintendo. And then it'll happen to Nintendo 64. Absolutely. I think people forget that the volume of the games out there versus the number of new collectors that are coming mm-hmm. in versus the ones leaving. And if if our generation of NES collectors isn't replaced, then there's no one else for them to go to. That's my whole point about ending up in a museum or where do they end up. Right. And no, I, I talked to, this is not just collectors. I talked to store owners. They're like, yeah, NES peaked in, in like summer 2016. Everyone, yep. I've had multiple people sell, tell me that. You look at the prices. And yeah, even like the little Samsons and Dinosaur Peaks, they stopped going up and they've even dropped a little bit. But all the common ass popular games have come down in price. And what does that tell you? Everyone who wants Contra and original copy is not going to pay what you think they're going to pay. So most people have it or are satisfied by now. And that's even happened with stuff like Earthbound. Ian told me in Portland, the last Portland he went to, he said Earthbounds were not selling. He said that tells me something. If an Earthbound's not selling at a retro game convention, what does that tell you? And that's a game that has come down, even for a popular game like that. That used to peak at like two fifty, two sixty, and now it's yeah. So there's a lot of things in play, but if we don't replace the generation of collectors with the next, the value just goes down. And yeah, so- we will. I mean, so the thing is, each generation of collectors wants something else. So yeah. the, the people who are like the people who are turning thirty now want Super Nintendo. And the people that are going to be turning 30 in five years will remember fondly Nintendo 64. But then once we get into GameCube era, it's entirely possible that those people coming in are going to want to collect something else. Because a lot of stuff from PS2 GameCube era was kept in really good condition. You know? And so it's it's it, the, the things that become collectible are the things that got thrown away back in the day. So it could be something else entirely. But yeah, it's just it's 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 the typical collecting cycle. It's quite, and it's yeah. and this is what's happening. I'm glad we but agree like, on I, this. <laughs> I'm not ho- Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's like if you are holding on to boxes upon boxes of NES games thinking that you were gonna retire off of them fifty years from now, like you you may have actually missed the boat in terms of the the peak time to sell that stuff off. I have everything except for stadium events. I don't have the not unlicensed, but all the licensed stuff except for stadium events. I have most unlicensed. But like I I'm not I'm not looking to go and like, you know, hoard and get multiple copies of that because I, that, that's over and Super Nintendo will be over soon too. Yeah, there's a finite number of time and a lot of times the prices of these games increase because you get the new speculators and investors in. I mean, it was like probably 4 or 5 years ago when you had a lot more people get into NES and you had, I call them Insta collectors where they would just 
get an entire set of NES games in a year. So that just drove yeah. the price up because they weren't willing to be patient, like like me or you were. It's like, oh, okay, I'm not going to spend. Fi- uh, I mean, my, my most famous story is Kid Clown, being one of the last licensed games I needed, and there was buy it now i remember two or three were like hillbilly media maybe you heard of them and they i think they were trying to corner the market on and that did happen with some ebay sellers they would buy up all the ones they saw and jack the price yeah so they would try and and sometimes it worked and in the case of kid clown there was never a copy on ebay this is back in like 2007 2008 and i refused to hit that 45 dollar buy it now and then finally one came on an open auction i got it for 11 bucks and i was just like there you go so I was yep. like, oh, this is what's going on. And that's before the buy it now became the standard, which helped dictate price as well and sort of set ceilings, which is a whole other conversation psychologically. Right. But getting off on a tangent. But I, I think people that wanted to benefit the most off of the, the prices getting jacked were also the ones helping to jack the prices as quickly as they could. It was all it was like a weird effect going on. But I think that's even died out as well because the price of admission now is not what it was in 2012. You know, but mm-hmm. now we're finally seeing the tail off where I've seen big time collectors sell off a lot of their games that got into it 2013 and now they're getting out. I have seen it. I've yeah. seen it happen. Well, no, sure. No, I mean, people, but the thing is, people are always selling collections and then people are always getting into it, right? And so it's just a question of what are the trends? Like, is it trend? Yeah. Are prices trending upwards in general? I think you can even go to pricecharting.com and you can find a chart that literally just takes the average of every retro game that they cover and you can look and see where that's going. If that. If that line starts to dip downwards, and then, uh, then then I'd start to get worried. Well, you have to do it by system, I think, to really know the trends and the volume of each system. Because there's, there's more NES collectors out there than there are Sega Saturn collectors. So I think that's really where you have to look at, okay, what are the, what are the main systems and what are people doing with it? You know, you're always right. going to have Atari Jaguar collectors, but honestly, who cares what they do because there's like 14 of them. I think, you know? well, yeah, I think that's where you're going to see the biggest kind of dropout is stuff like Atari Jaguar, where it never really had a fan base. You know, yeah. it's really, it became a, it became a collecting phenomenon. Um, whereas, I mean, NES, like it, we, we talk about NES being at its peak. It's not like it's like plummeting down into the depths of nothing. It's, it you know, Super Mario Brothers and things like that, the things that people do fondly remember um are still going to have an audience and, and wanting to buy stuff but it's just a question of the, the 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 overall trend but like something like atari jaguar where again it's literally just like no one cares and and they were blowing these things out and really nobody cared about it it's you know that's that's really going to be a problem yeah i just go back to again you, you go by the popular the popular games on a system and that's really like where i like to define because those games are so readily available yet people wanted them um, so, but so that's why I say a game like Contra, for example, has come down like 30, 40%. I think it peaked at like 48, yep. $50, something like that. And that came down. And if, and, and people are going to start moving away. I mean, you know, there was this whole, I mean, you know, in the, in the two thousands, in the early part of this decade, um, if you wanted to play NES games, I mean, you were either playing it on an emulator on your computer, which was iffy, or, you know, you could buy an NES and hook it up to your TV at home. Um, and, and people were doing that a lot. They wanted the cartridges cause they wanted to play it. And I think we're getting a lot more of a separation now where people realize you know you don't have to own the original cartridge to play these games and not only that but it's like a real pain in the ass to try to do that yes and the better thing to do is just you know either buy an analog mini nt or use an emulator or use a raspberry pi or whatever and just and just do it like that and the idea of like having this whole collection of cartridges that you need to reference it's so it's so cumbersome Especially as people are moving digital with their music collections and dumping all their CDs too. Absolutely, and and that's uh, 
the, you know, there's a documentary I'm helping out with that's looking at that about you know the, the death of physical media, and that also means the eventual death of mom and pop game shops. You're, mm-hmm. you're going to see it retract, and I think it has retracted a little bit. I don't have a lot of data to go off of. I think it had it blew up and it retracted. Definitely have it at my local flea market. I'd say the peak of my flea market it went from one or two retro game sellers to six mm-hmm. or seven. Yeah, around yeah. I want to say 2013. Six or seven. Then within about a year or two, they realized, hey, we're all sell- selling the same games for the same exact prices. Because guess what? They made a billion Mario Kart 64s. So how can we all charge 35 or 30 bucks on it? So then it went back to one or two, and now it's down to one. So you see the people that got into it because they knew it was sexy. People that were maybe – people that dealt with other media like DVDs or CDs, they saw it. But now they're like, okay, now the price of admission is higher even for me to acquire the stuff. Now I'm out. So you mm-hmm. see the usually the first people – in or the last ones to usually leave it. And you have the last ones in are usually the first out. From what I see with this. And the same thing with the collectors. So me and you will be old and gray and still, you know, own our weird-ass stuff that goes into the coffin with us. Well, my Amy- Will I? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, for, for me, it's like I got to figure out. It's like I really have to, you know, do the soul-searching and, and say, what is the long game here? Like, what is where do I see this ending up and when, and then working towards that goal? I, do I have things that I think should go to a museum? Absolutely. I sure. Do, you know, and, 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 and it's, but it's like the cream of the crop type stuff. Yeah. It's the really, really good stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. My, my NWC cards, like I can, any museum, I can put them on loan or whatever, or give yeah. eventually if I wanted to be mm-hmm. a nice, huge tax write off. But like, yeah, like I said, like, ah, who's going to want my box ninja kid. Who's going to want that in a museum? Like, is that going to be a, a, a piece? Oh, 1986 NES games. Is there going to be a, a curated collection of that? Probably not. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I think a lot of – no, I mean, I think museums – well, museums, universities, I mean, they will want to keep some of that stuff around. Hey, so- some, hey, boxed Ninja Kids. It's hard to find a Ninja <laughs> Kid box. It is. It's difficult. Chubby Cherub, that was a tougher one to find, but they probably yeah. made roughly the same amount uh, of yep. those. Um, that was a tough one for me to get Chubby Cherub. I sold my schoon. Anyway, so do you, do you agree though that you know with the with the d- eventual death of physical media, we're now seeing it with 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 movies and TV shows. It's it's coming quicker than I even I thought. I, I always say like probably within even five years, you may not be able to buy a Blu-ray anymore. You know that might be a something. Yeah, it's, that's- it's it's certainly possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I mean, you know, just watching people dump CDs like crazy and just you know and and find all kinds oh of CDs God. at thrift stores now. Oh sure. And I'm crazy for buying stuff, but like they can't even sell them. So it's like I'll get you know good music, especially things that are where I'm like, you know, this isn't on iTunes. This isn't something that's sure. on Amazon. You know, I'll 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 buy this. Um, but. Yeah, I do see people dumping more physical media. I think that does extend to games. I mean, the thing that I would just tell everybody is, you know, have fun collecting video games, but be smart. Like, don't don't get caught up in, like, speculative mania because it's not going to be good for you. Like, do what makes sense for your own finances and only buy these things if you really are having a good time doing it and you really think that you you want these things. And don't feel pressured Um, because I think what I really, one of the things that kind of scares me about like online collecting culture right now is people looking at, uh, you know, either Reddit game collecting or, or, or YouTube or, or anything and saying, oh, I want to be part of this, this online community. So what I got to do is I got to go out and spend money. I don't have on games. I don't want. And take pictures of it and post it online, um, you know, to to be a part of the community that I'm collecting games. And it's like, 
you don't have to do that. It's it's okay to not buy things that you may not necessarily actually want. Do you think that's a part of the, the rise in this over the past five, six years? Is, is literally people just want to be part of a club or online bragging about, hey, I'm in the little Samson club now. I, yeah, congrats. I think that there, I, cause I people, think there cause is people a would tweet of, at me that or send me messages. Hey, Pat, I got a little Samson. What do you want me to say? Congratulations. You spent 900 bucks on eBay. Like what, like what do you want exactly you want me to say? Right, right, right. I know. I, I absolutely think that there is. And it's not, you know, of course, you know, everybody wants to feel like they're, they're part of a community. Um, but when it gets to the point where if you are spending money that you don't have on things that you don't want to be part of that community, it's like, you know, it's, it's all, it, like, again, like, don't, don't buy a little Samson to impress Pat. Right. Like it's it's oh, you don't have to do that. Pat's not Pat's not impressed. And <laughs> and, you know, it's like it's it's all right. Like it's OK to just to do it the way that you want to do it. Yes. Go at your own pace. Don't spend your rent money. So I'm glad me and Chris agree on that. And and, you know, remember that you will die one day. And no you know one. what I mean? Like just 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 figure out like what is what is the end game here? Because the end game is probably not you passing it down to your children. Because you hear that from a lot of people, like, oh, I'm going to pass it down to my kids. It's like, your kids probably don't want your stuff. Like, a lot, what you, what tends to happen is you get old and you die, and all your, your, your house full of possessions ends up becoming a burden on your adult children. And they're like, oh, we got to get rid of all yeah. granddad's stuff. And they end up selling it for pennies on the dollar because they have to get rid of it. Think and about it. It's, like it's, think it's about better your, for you to sell it because you're the one who knows what it's worth. I think about my, when my when my grandparents died and they had like the big yard sale in the back with all the trinkets and stuff they had. They, yeah. they, probably, they probably had old silverware, old, uh, old China, depression glass. And it's like, yeah, that's valuable to some people, but you got to find those specific people that want to spend that money. Otherwise, yeah. you're basically giving the crap also, away to get rid of it. Yeah. How much of your day, you know, how many days, how many weeks, months are you going to be able to take out of your life to sell all their stuff and make sure that they're getting top value out of it? It's like you got to get rid. You got to got to get it gone. Yeah. There's time is sometimes time is money. Because you got to sell the house, yeah. So you got to sell the stuff before you can sell the house, and it's like it, it has to get it gone. And I, even if there is something valuable, you don't have the time to to do it. And I tell people that in terms of negotiating tips, it's like know the market of some of these game systems. It's like you have a lot more wiggle room when it's a system that you know that not many people are into. Or you can mm-hmm. if someone throws an eBay price at you, you can be like, yeah, that eBay price is for such a small subsection of collectors. <laughs> And most of them already have that game, so please work with me. You know, it's a lot different negotiating a Super Nintendo game that's hard to define versus, I don't know, that's right. Odyssey 2 game, you know, or in television. You know, there's there's different sizes of market or Atari Lynx, you know, so you have to be wary of that. But also be wary of that when you value your collection. When you say, oh, my collection is worth this amount of money. It'd be like, does that- oh, you know, I just saw that. I just saw like somebody had posted on some forum and they had used a collection tracker that pulls in values from tr- price charting. And they're like, well, I only spent $2,000 on my collection, but it's worth $8,000. And then they had a screenshot and uh, it's like Atari 2600 with 30 games. And it's like they're 30 games. And that screenshot is showing their 30 Atari 2600 games worth $200. And it's like, well, sure, if you take eBay costs, uh, you know, an eBay price of each, this game was $3, this game was $4, and you multiply that times 30, you get to 200 But 
try to sell those 30 games yeah. for $200. I, and this, just try it. It's just fun. try to do it. And this is this is funny because this is why someone who appeared on uh, Stores Wars went after me because I questioned their valuation of Atari games at $10 each. Um, random ass 20s, 150, 200 games, $10 each when the average price is probably $1.20. Something like that. But speaking of that, I forgot to bring this up. I can honestly, I can honestly say 2017 was the first year where I saw NES games priced like 2,600 games, where I saw oh, really? boxes of dollar NES games for sale. Interesting. First Where year, did you see that? Two conventions. I saw it at a Syracuse two convention. conventions? Yes. Yeah. Yo, I yeah. I have, like, I don't, I don't have that many NES games because I, like, you know, that you see the prices coming down, but it's like I've got a little pile of NES games that, that I was bringing to collections. They're not moving. Like, nobody seems to want to buy them. I'm probably going to do them 50% off the next time I sell stuff just to get rid of them. We're, we are approaching that point. I tell people, this isn't the majority of the library, but there's going right. to be a good 200 NES games are going to be dollar games. We are yep. fast approaching that point. Yep, and you're not going to be able to sell them and, for a And, I, and they're, not all, they're not all trash games either. They're not all right. trash games. Estaniacs. Yeah, they're just... Not a trash game. It's a dollar game, yep. though. It's going to hit yeah, that point. But I, I totally agree. I think that a lot of uh, vendors have, especially if you're bigger, you know, bigger vendors, you've probably been sitting on a lot of NES games that you have been, you know, you just, you take all the NES games, you bring them to the convention, you sell what you can, you take back the rest and you repeat and repeat and repeat. But after the last few years, I'm guessing that a lot of people have seen the same thing that I saw, which is nobody's touching them, nobody's buying them at all. And you're hauling the same box or two boxes or 10 boxes and you got to mark them down. And, but the same was for common and rare games which is why i'm like okay i think we're hitting the critical mass point of the collectors having what they need uh so Mm -hmm. there was three or four copies of blackjack on the nes which is a rare Uh game it's probably rarer than people think yeah that was one of the last of the um of the like the ave games that i needed it's pretty rare so out of those four copies i saw it too many games last year i think only one had sold the whole weekend okay and they weren't asking an exorbitant amount they were asking maybe what it was worth like 20 25 bucks or whatever and no one wanted it so what does that tell you it's like there's no there's no desire for the game it's only valuable if you are trying to complete together every single unlicensed and who is trying to do that anymore and why would you even try to do that so yeah it's not super mario brothers like that at least a copy of super mario brothers is going to hold on to some kind of value for quite a long time just because of the significance and because enough people will want to have a copy of that so you hear hear first from chris panic and sell your games right now and crash the market no yeah Because I always surmise that it probably would only take about three or four big collectors to do that. And that would mm-hmm. sort of sour the market in general. It would be like, that would be enough probably to have that many games out there where it's like, okay. I mean, uh, you know, again, we don't really know what percentage of collectors out there are actually speculating. Because a lot of people lie to themselves. They say, oh, I'm not speculating. I'm going to keep this forever. But then the second prices start to go down, they dump. And it's like, you were speculating. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't being honest with yourself about it, but you were buying this thinking the price is going to go up and up and up and then I'm going to retire. But in fact, the price dipped a little bit and you dumped. And that is what, that's what happens with a speculative mania. It's that as soon as prices start to go down, everybody dumps everything. So I think, I think we're gonna, we might hit that over the next few years depending on, on what system it is. But I think we're, we are, eh, we'll see, 10, 20 years away from the Elvis collectibles phase. 
Or it's like Yeah, well the thing with the Elvis collectibles thing is that everybody died. So I mean you don't have to you don't have to worry that your collection doesn't have any value anymore because you're dead. Because grandma just died or your aunt your aunt Phyllis died and all their stuff no, is No, you, no, you personally. I mean grandma oh, was I'm the fin- one who had all the Elvis stuff. And it's like you go to it's like you go to a gravesite and be like, Grandma, you'll never believe it. Your copy of uh Hunka Hunka Burn in Love is only worth ten dollars, not a hundred dollars anymore. Grandma you're, says nothing because she's dead. She doesn't care you're, at that you're, point. But then who do you give it to? The collectible plates. Who do they go? <laughs> right, right, right. Oh man, I hope it's not like that. Straight, but that's what... right into the dump. So yeah, I hope you love your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so so what else are we gonna was we gonna talk about? We won't get into the grading stuff too much. We we went back and forth on Twitter, the great Twitter VGA debate of 2018. Yeah, uh, I don't look. If, if, <laughs> here, here's my position on this. I don't own many sealed games, and so basically what happened on Twitter was that you know I I posted that I had a couple of sealed games, had a Mega Man Five for NES, I had a a first run of like Final Fantasy Seven, and I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm really you know I'm so into collecting. I've never ever done this, and I've got just a couple of sealed games that are you know would go for a lot of money. Uh, I also have a toddler, and they can take the shrink wrap off a game in <laughs> two seconds flat. I'm gonna actually really, and also I've I've just had I've had a lot of questions over the years about what's up with this VGA thing. What is it like? What happens? And I'm like, you know, I don't personally know. Um, and so I'm going to do this with a few games, you know, and just, and, and see how it goes. And I can certainly say that, you know, the, the people who work there are super professional, really communicative, um, you know, very, very, they run their business really, really well. Um, and so if, if somebody's thinking of doing it, I wouldn't say, I would say, they really take care of your stuff. They are super well, you know, they document everything. You know, you should you should at least not worry that you're sending your stuff into a black hole. Like, I feel like they were very good and professional. Um, and I don't... I don't care about the grading. Like, I don't care about the actual, like, the, oh, this is an 80, 80. Like, I don't, I don't even know what my games came back graded. I saw they had grades on them. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. I really care about the idea of you know, they're third party authenticated, which means that if I do sell them, anybody who would actually consider buying them, all they have to do is glance at it and they go, that's sealed. It's not a question of them having to look over the seal and make their own determination at that point. Because if you know, you, you understand that that game is sealed if, if the, if it's in a VGA case and that's, and that's kind of, that was kind of it for me. Well, she said that on Twitter would have saved us some time. I don't. I don't actually you didn't say that on Twitter. I, no, you didn't. You're too, you're no, you didn't. Busy yelling no, you didn't. <laughs> no, I actually I agree with with what you said. I I think again my my main issues like I even posted the video that me and Ian, you know, we talked about mm-hmm. why we don't agree with it. It's that um, you're not actually at the end of the day grading the contents. Yes. Of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And that's where it's materially not the same as grading. Um, for we always like the comic books since I was like comic books and baseball cards and coins were the first major markets where it's like you are grading the entire aspect of, of the, of the, of the device. You're really just grading for the most part, the seal on it. I mean, unless the, yeah, that's right. Cause people don't bother usually to grade seal games that are really banged up. They don't, they usually don't freaking bother, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I agree. The cases are high quality. The cases are great. I, I, my NWCs are encased in those. I got them custom made, right. but I didn't get them sealed. Uh, well, you know, no, that's the difference. I was like, oh. you get it. Well, you get it. You get it sealed if you want. I mean, they have to seal it because it, the certificate because of, the of authenticity I, has to be with it somehow. Uh, and typically, what they do with collectibles, like if you have a baseball with an autograph on it, they'll put a little sticker on the baseball 
that says, you know, oh, this is the serial number and this goes with sure. this certificate. And then if you remove the serial number, it's, it's good. But with a video game, you can't do with a sealed game. You can't do that because as soon as you put a sticker on the seal, you're you're harming it. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem is the market forces driving it. And that's really the issue I think that most people have with it is because you have an artificial inflation that happens due to people getting something graded and there's a cost associated with that, whatever it is, $60 a game, some 50, something mm-hmm. like that. Then all of a sudden people place an arbitrary value on that saying, okay, this is what the, the VGA 85 is or 90, 90 plus. Mm-hmm. And people are like, wait a second. Like, what is, what are we talking about here? Because if I try to find a sealed version of this game, I can probably get it for a lot less. So what exactly, yeah. like, what is the valuation uh, yeah. going on here? <clears throat> I don't, I, I personally don't get it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like if, if you want, I, but I just say live and let live. If people want to, if people want to go nuts paying too much money for a VGA 95, you know, version of something like that, go, go right ahead and, and be crazy with, with oh, your sure. money. Oh, uh, no, I think, I think that's what people have an issue with and, and people that are, I mean, it happens with comic books too, where you get something brand new and you get them graded like I. That to me blows my mind. It's like anything brand new. There's a billion of them that are unopened at this point. Oh so yeah, don't I mean that's that's. But, I yeah, I don't, I don't. Again, I don't, I don't play with that. I don't get into that. You know what I mean? Like I'm just, I'm not at all in that world. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that there are people, and I think that, I think that those might be people who are speculating, who are like getting you know, 10 copies of new Super Mario Brothers DS and getting them all all VGA graded in the hopes that, you know, later on, you know, 20 years from now, they're going to have a million dollars worth of games on their hands. And I I don't think that that's true. Yeah, that they're they're looking at basically where the comic market got in the mid 90s, where people started buying 10 copies of mass-produced items that are worthless now that you can't yeah. give Yeah, away. I once went into a store, like a uh, collectible store, and there was all these boxes of comics, okay? I'm like, okay, there's boxes of comics. And I start looking through, and literally it's just like multiple copies of issue number one mm-hmm. of a million different comics from the 90s. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, I was just buying five to ten copies of the first issue of all of these different <laughs> comics in case one was thinking, worth money <laughs> no just thinking no thinking that They're the old. first issue of everything was always going to be worth but, money um whereas in reality it's actually reversed because for a lot of 90s comics it's the last issue with the lowest print run that actually ends up being worth the money interesting chris i didn't want to look into that meanwhile meanwhile pe- this all this guy just has all these things that he can't sell for anything because it was like well you're a fool all the chromian ninjack number ones by valiant which i probably bought but probably bought to read thinking, but thinking oh you know this could be worth money no it's not and now, i think that's i think that's the lesson to learn is that stuff so but I, but 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 that's what's going on now uh and i don't really know th- like the extent of it in video games it's probably not quite as crazy as the comics were because the comics they print like i mean god knows how many of those things they were printing that people were snapping up and holding on to oh, absolutely but in games but in games right now if you look at the, the limited run games all the other companies that are doing all these sort of limited not even limited editions just like oh we're only going to print five thousand of this game that you don't care about and would never buy but for the fact that we're telling you that we're only ever going to print six thousand of them like that's a speculation bubble and i i will definitely say i got into it a little bit with the limited run games because i was like oh these that's really cool they're only going to print a certain amount of these i'll buy these and after after like after like 20 of those, I was like, 
I'm getting out of this. You I'm saw, selling these limited going, run games. Well, oh, yeah, well, plus yeah they're, for sure. They're put, so they're putting I'm, us- ho- I'm buying and holding on to the ones where I like the game, like Odd World, stuff like that. But, like, the rest of it? No, thank you. I do know there, there are people that are buying every single one. I mean, hell, when they, when they bring... There's a lot of people they, who are. The, they bring their extra stock to conventions. And, and I know the guys that listen, Josh, great guys, and I like what they're doing. But, yeah, they yeah. most of their stuff sells out at conventions it yep. just goes by the first day there it's gone and it's like huh who's buying this up but i like what they're doing because it is an outlet for preservation for digital only titles oh oh that's it's extremely right. important it's great it's great that they're doing it in in that sense for sure yeah yeah so even for that i don't care if people speculate and buy every copy at least we know we're gonna have physical versions of some of these games otherwise that's right. we won't down the yeah. line and i think but like but again if you are convincing yourself that you are building a nice little retirement package for yourself by owning all the limited run games games those are all going to get dumped when everybody dumps their ps4 i mean dumped as in like given away I, to thrift stores i think the better analogy to limited run games and not not disparaging the product by mean what people are valuing it at would be like those 80s collector plates Absolutely. Where you have these small yep. markets where everyone's frenzy. Oh, I want to get the next generation collector's place too. Oh, these other ones have gone up in value? Really? Yeah, because it's the same people buying all of them. So it's like its own little insulated market. That's the way I see it, at least. Where it's going to be hard to transfer those outside of that little market to someone else to see the same value. It's like, oh. It could- Again, and there's people now who are like, I'm going to I'm gonna get every game on the Switch. I'm going to buy every game on the Switch. And it's like, you're going you're gonna to buy them as they come out at 50 bucks each? Like... <laughs> You think that's a good idea? And there's people who were doing that. And it's like, okay, have fun with that. Because what's going to happen when the Switch, you know, becomes obsolete in five to ten years, somewhere in the middle there. Like, all that stuff is going to go down in value. That's the time to buy it. Right now is the time to buy Wii. Yes. You know, a year from now is the time to buy Wii U. But it's but it's not the time to buy it when they're actually publishing it. And the good news is for a lot of those Wii U games, you'll be able to buy them brand new, old stock, instead of getting them used. Probably you'll be able to find yeah. them somewhere. Yeah, I, Wii U might be the collectible. I mean, Wii U, I think, actually will be the Nintendo collectible of whatever you know, ten, twenty years from now, because it's like the it's like the Vectrex. You know what I mean? I, like they didn't, they barely made any of them. Okay, um, barely is a strong word, but they, okay, I see what you're they, saying. They break. I mean, if the Wii U, if your gamepad controller breaks, that's it. The whole system is shot, and they never they never made any more of the gamepads. They never sold them separately. So there's one gamepad per system, and if the gamepad breaks, whole thing's shot. So, I mean, they're fragile. You have to have the gamepad. It has to work. Uh, it's like there's there's just and, – and there's not that many of them. It is the lowest-selling Nintendo home console by, a, by, a, by 10 miles. Not counting virtual, um, boy. It's got a few good games. Yeah, well, no, home console. Okay. It's got a few good games, and, um, you know, it's, it, it does have games people like. And uh, there's there's a very small library of physical games, so people will in ten twenty years want to collect a Wii U and all the games for it. So I would say hold on to them, but like I wouldn't sp- I wouldn't be spending tons of money on it. No, I wouldn't either. Because what was that awfully reviewed game that people started snatching up and went up to a hundred bucks? And they did this, they did the second print of it. They did one re- they did one reprint. Oh yeah. Also, I mean, you know, a very important lesson for collectors is it's not collectible if the the printing press is still on. Yes, because and- everybody collected Res for PS2, and then and then they're like, oh, let's make more. Like, oh, look, this costs two hundred dollars. Let's make more it, of them. Is that, so they did. But isn't the danger for any disc-based game going forward is that they can make a hundred percent accurate? No, because they're not. Because they're not making PS1 
games anymore. Like that's that's over. But right? PS2, I don't, they can. I think they still yeah, yeah they are. because Sega Sega just yes. reprinted Yakuza that's, and Yakuza Two. That's the whole point. So P, you can still get PS2 games printed. So be very careful when buy Rule of Rose costs like two hundred dollars on PS2, and it is not out of the question. That, like, at some point, Atlas might go, oh, we did another run of Rule of Rose and tank the whole thing. Yeah. Be very careful with that. PS1 at this point, I'm pretty sure that's over. You're pretty like, sure I'm pretty PS1. Sure. It'd be hard, you, hard you to replicate that. You can't just call up Sony and make another PS1 game anymore. Like, that's that's done. That's done. But PS2, you can. But PS2, as, you as can. As evidenced by Yakuza. And in theory, they'll be able to do the same thing with Wii U. I'm not saying Nintendo would be likely to allow that easily. But you know, I yeah, I I sincerely <laughs> I or sincerely doubt or GameCube that Nint- <laughs> well GameCube is over. We I, I I we and Wii U you can probably still get runs of the- oh no I mean you can still make Wii games because Ubisoft still releases Just Dance on the Wii. That was the last game, wasn't it? So no, but they just, keep coming out with it every year. I thought Just Sing was it was, was it Just Sing 2016 was the no, last one. Everybody said oh everybody said oh Just Sing it's the last Wii game. Oh, was it's it the last Wii game? But then another Just Dance came out, and then another one came out after that. Like, because they probably figure hey if we do ten thousand Wii versions it doesn't cost us anything or twenty five thousand someone might buy it still. Just just, Just Dance 2018 came out on the Wii. you got to be kidding me. Are Not you, even kidding. I me. might have to buy that just because. And it came out on the Wii U. They might do Just Dance 2019 on the Wii U. It's entirely possible. How? So as long as those printing presses are still on, they could go back and print more of anything. 34 bucks on Amazon. Don't, don't spend $150 on Hello Kitty Cruisers for the for the Wii U, as some people are doing. Are they really? Until you, yeah. Wow. Until you know, because they could always just make more. So just watch out. Just be careful with that. I think that's where it's going to be the definition of how collectible will, the, will these systems be. When you look at something like the Wii that was hugely popular, lots of right. shovelware, but still had some nice games. And, but everyone had it. Lots of people had the Wii. Will there be people going gung-ho, I want to get every Wii game five, ten years from now? And Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It's going gonna, gonna to be a very small number of people, though. I think that's sort of things like I think the nostalgia level – for these systems will more transfer to the individual games versus the entire feeling of the system like, itself. Like PC gaming, exactly. basically. Yeah. That's where yeah. I see these ending yep. up, and that's There's why. There's just too much stuff. There's too much stuff, and it's like, well, you know, no one even buys any physical media anymore, so why should I have eight walls of white Wii games in front of you me? you got to have a lot of, of space for the, the, the complete Wii. Game. I don't even think about that. All these cases, think about it. Well, even PS2, what is that, 2,500 games if you want to get every PS2 game? That's insane. Yeah. It's wait, yeah, it's it's too crazy. Man, we're the dying breed of completionist collectors here. By the way, I still need that Master System uh, Buster Douglas manual. I still got to find oh, that. Oh, man. <laughs> Should have, well, actually, I mean, honestly, you know what? Again, like, nothing has really happened with the Buster Douglas price either, so... I guess it went up a little bit. Time. Went up a little bit. Okay. Okay. But not that but it's much. Still, it's, but it's still gonna it's still gonna come down like NES is. So just you know, I'll do what you did. You pawn off your crappy version to someone and buy complete again. That's what you did to me. That's what that's what every Master <laughs> System collector has to do. It's like because you accidentally when you're collecting Master System, you're like, oh, okay, well, okay, well, this game doesn't have a manual. That's fine. I'll get this and I'll put it into my collection and I'll get the manual later. And then you realize that you can't. So you have to sell the you have to buy a CIB and sell the the CB. By the way, just to let you know, there's been a couple of the we're now we're getting into the weeds on Master System. There's been a couple Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's but, that's how you know the podcast is over. That's how you know it's dying, but there's been a couple of the Sonic US versions with the UPC on eBay lately. Yeah. There's a sealed one up right now and there was one that Is there a sealed one up right now? Yeah. I gotta go look at that. I don't know what it's really? going to 
which I'm interested. I'd be interested to take a look at that. But there, one, I think one sold recently that was just that was opened up for six hundred. It was a six hundred dollar buy it now. It was on there for a while. I looked at it. And it was on there really? for a while, and someone just said, "Okay, I need it. I bought it." So I'm like, I'm not sure that's a good price or not because of that because it's a buy it now. These never come up for sale. And I know we spoke about right. it before and about you know how many of these were out there. Were these done at certain stores? Was this every copy in the U.S.? Like, was it a subset? It's extremely interesting in this case because there's so few of these out there. There's just so few of them that you find with the UPC. Yeah. Um, so I'll be curious to see where the sealed ones end, ends up. To me, a sealed Master System game is worth just the same as a regular. But in the case of this, since this is a special case, you know, who knows what it goes up uh, for. That sticker looks bad to me. The sticker looks bad? On the sealed one? Yeah, it does not look good to me. The actual seal that, looks bad? No, yeah, because no, the, um, the, the UPC sticker is too small. It's 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 cut, it's it's really cut down. Uh oh, um, you think it's fake? It does it? It doesn't look like I I look. I can't say it's fake. I can say that does not look like any other sticker I have ever seen on this. Well, you can compare it to the one I just sold. So if you hit completed, no, I mean I have one. I mean, oh, I, you do. I've, I've seen I've seen a lot of these stickers, and none of them looks like this. So oh, I see. Yeah, I think I have one of my. I think my my Spider Man one has one. And yeah, you think you're right. It covers the entire. Uh, UPC on the actual case itself. Yeah, exactly. Like this, this it's too small. Interesting, know, Chris. This is why I don't like overvaluing this sort of stuff because you never know. <laughs> right. With this. Well, I mean, I I know that mine is real. Sure. But this this I would really want to. Is this also if this is like is that, is that is that sticker on the outside of the seal or on the inside? I can't tell from the picture. Either. Yeah, but if it's on, but you know the thing is, if it's um, so they did shrink wrap these, uh, but not in Europe. So. They would take the European release, put the sticker on it, and then shrink wrap over the whole thing. So the the sticker wouldn't be on the outside; it would be on the inside. But if but then but then if this guy's going to fake this, he would have had to fake um, the seal the seal as well. Gotcha. So I don't know. We'll see, I'm Chris. Not sure about this? Yeah. We'll see about that. I'm I'm, I'm satisfied with my European version, and I'm I'm cool because it's the same as oh, totally. <laughs> Yeah, you really, you know, it's like you gotta like you have to make this determination. Like, how much do you want to pay for a sticker? Yeah, um, yeah, I got a, I got a good deal on mine. But so, Chris, what else? What else you got going on in the future? You be, now you've been working on Kotaku uh, for a short period of time. Oh, uh, so I mean, I wrote the I wrote the book Power Up that we talked about, but um, I, my most recent book is called Final Fantasy V. Um, it's for a publisher called Boss Fight Books. The book itself is about the game Final Fantasy V, but it's a- additionally, in addition to being a sort of a deep dive on that game, um, it is about um, my kind of like life as a teenager getting into importing video games because Final Fantasy V was the first game I ever actually imported because uh, I got really impatient because it wasn't coming out in the US, so I had to buy the <laughs> Japanese Super Famicom game. And it's about kind of like that era um, and so it's really about the era of like, um, I bought this game and then a year later emulators started to appear. And then a year later, everybody in the U S could play final fantasy five because you could emulate it. And it's about like going from this era of scarcity, uh, you know, U S uh, gamers learning more about Japan. It's about me going to Japan. And, and so it's like half, it's half like a, a story about that particular era of gaming culture and then half like a super deep dive into the making of Final Fantasy V, all about Final Fantasy V, why Final Fantasy V is the best Final Fantasy. Um, so if that at all interests you, you should check that out. Check it out. It's on Amazon. Uh, it is. And Chris is still putting in work at Kotaku there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you got you to gotta tell uh, 
tell uh, Jason over there that NES games don't age as badly as he thinks he thinks they do. <laughs> Jason, yeah, Jason is um, he he is younger than we are, and okay. you don't think it because he looks like an old man, but he's actually like he's <laughs> he's he's one he's like one like not a generation behind me, but he's a, he's a he's a video gaming system generation behind me, uh-huh. and I think that like. Like, I start with NES, so I think that that's where the good games started, and then Atari, eh. Uh, all the Atari people started with Atari, so they think that's where the good games started. Gotcha. And Jason is a Super Nintendo kid, so he believes that Super Nintendo is where all the good games started, and then everything prior to that is whatever. Pat, what's really going to mess you up is all this when people start saying that the Nintendo 64 was where all the good games started, and oh, everything prior to that was no No good. one's saying that, Chris, because <laughs> I don't think people are getting behind the N64 that much besides like that's the that's real no it will happen and oh, it really will make I you think, feel like an old no, man I, when they say <laughs> when they say super mario 64 is the best mario and you know mario world is uh is is clunky and old yeah the talk about that's really gonna, talk about a, a, a console aesthetic that didn't stick around at all i mean that's really it i mean that sort of got got lost in the lost in a puddle there nintendo sort of made a mass miscalculation with the n64 that they paid for and you can argue are still mm-hmm. paying uh, for today, but hey, I offered to send Jason a free copy of my book. If you see him in the hallway or on a conference call, tell him that offer is uh, that offer still stands. So, Chris, where can people? I'll let him know. Where can people uh, find you online and on Twitter? Uh, Twitter, my handle is Kobun Heat, K O B U N H E A T, like a Kobun, the surf bot for Marvel versus Capcom, and then the word Heat, H E A T. I picked that handle because. I didn't it was 2008 and I did not realize that like your Twitter handle would be like your like your one way of people to contact you <laughs> for the rest of your life. So I made a Marvel versus Capcom 2 joke when I signed up for Twitter and I'm stuck with it and I'm verified. Um well, so I'm, I'm Pat the NES on Twitter. Twitter so <laughs> there you go. You're never going to be able to get away from that from that branding, that character. Um so yeah, that's that's me on Twitter. Uh and yeah, that's how you can find me. All right. Thanks so much, Chris, for uh, for spending some time with me. I'm hoping to haggle with you again vociferously at an upcoming Good. convention. There's me showing Give me some, hell. Give you hell. Don't let me don't yeah. <laughs> don't let me uh don't let me get away with anything. <laughs> you know I don't. Thanks a lot, Chris. <laughs> All right, thanks, Pat. That does it for this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. Thanks again to Chris for speaking to me. Guys, check out sponsor Dollar Shave Club. Go to dollarshaveclub.com slash pat, and you can try the Executive Razor. It's a six-blade razor with four cartridges for only $1 with free shipping. There's no commitment, and you can cancel anytime. It gives you a nice close shave, which I should probably do after this podcast. <laughs> again, check out Dollar Shave Club. They have lots of other uh, articles for for grooming for men, there's uh, they have soaps, they have they have oils, they have shampoos, anything you could ever want for uh, bathroom grooming. One wipe Charlie's if you use those. Again, go to dollarshapeclub.com slash pat and you try any razor there, including the executive razor for only $1. $1 with free shipping. That's it for this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube if you're watching there or on your podcast platform of choice if you listen. Podbean iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or whatever you use to listen to your podcast. You can rate the podcast, click the thumbs up, you can leave a comment, and please, please spread the love on social media, Twitter, Facebook. Let others know how much you enjoy my ramblings. Finally, if you want to help support my ramblings and keep the lights on in this new studio, you can check out my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Thanks, and I'll see you next time.